ways that we're just not able to grasp. It, it's not. It's not that um, he hasn't revealed it or you know things like that. It's just that we just don't have the ability to to grasp and and to understand things that he he knows. Um, I, I was reminded of a pretty famous quote by John Calvin about this. I'll read it for you. He says that God lisps with us as nurses or as nannies or, or child care providers are inclined to do with little children. Such modes of expression, though, do not, much, do not so much express what kind of being that God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. What, what Calvin is saying is that it's it's like he it's like we speak to kids. You know, when you when you speak to to children, there is vocabulary that you can't use with them because they won't understand it. So you tailor your communication to fit words and categories and, and concepts that they can understand. You don't use a lot of abstract concepts. You use ideas that they can understand and relate to. Now, you realize that when you do that, you're not communicating the full amount of your understanding to them you know when you when you leave a conversation with a four-year-old you don't say well i just unloaded everything i know about everything to them no you didn't you you chose your words carefully you shared with them what they can process but then you walk away and you say well i know an awful lot more than i just told them but i can't give them everything i know because they don't have the ability to, to take it in well calvin is saying that's what god does with us there are so many things that God knows and understands that he has not necessarily revealed to us, but it's not because he's trying to keep a secret. It's because we don't have the ability to grasp it. We don't have the concepts or the buckets to contain it. And so what I'm, what I'm urging us to consider this morning is not simply that God, God's ways are different or even higher than our ways, even, even though that is true, it's not like, oh, God's just like somebody from another culture and he just does things differently. No. It's that there are things that, that only God can see and therefore we cannot see them and therefore we cannot understand them. He has a perspective that we don't have. It's like, it's like someone being up in a helicopter and they can see things that we on the ground just cannot see. Or it's, it's like a writer an author of a story, and the, and the author knows where the story is going because he's written the story, but the people in the story, if, 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 if we could apply that to ourselves, don't know what the next steps are. Or it's like a designer, the one who made us, understanding how we're made and what we're made for and what our capacities are better than we do. So, so with that in mind, the, the first point, and this is, this is not rocket science, but life is complex, and it's difficult to understand. Life is, is, is complicated and it's hard to understand. As, as Doc read, verses 20, 12 to 22 are probably the biggest section of the passage. And in that section, we're, we're being drawn into this consideration of how uncommon wisdom and understanding really are. They're described as being more rare than all these minerals that we, we tend to mine the earth for. I mean, he, you know, he talks about how human beings 
dig all over the place looking for these valuable gemstones. And why are they valuable? Because they're rare. Wisdom and understanding are more more rare than that. They're not they're not going to be found. You can look everywhere for them, but you're not going to find them. You can you can pull all the wealth together that you can find and try to purchase it, but they can't be bought. Wisdom and understanding are not to be found. Actually, it says they're not to be found at all in this world. In verse 13 it said, "They are not found in the land of the living." The land of the living is is where we live. It's this world. It's this life. They are hidden from everyone in the world. Now you might say, well, this sounds a little bit overstated. Maybe maybe this is hyperbole. Um, certainly we don't have zero wisdom, and certainly we don't have zero knowledge. But I think I think there's a kind of wisdom and understanding about life that is in view here, and I, and I actually think that this is not an idea that's hard for us to accept. Let me let me give you a couple of examples here that will maybe help you feel the the weight of what what I'm getting at here. How do you explain a family, a godly family, that's part of our church? that has had to bury two of their sons within a 14-month period of time. How do you explain that? Where's understanding for that? Another another situation, this is not someone who's a part of our church, but it's a part of another church in our community, a man I know who has had to bury his oldest son and his wife in a span of 18 months. How do you explain that? The church where I, I served before coming here to EP uh, is a church down in the southern part of Anne County. That church, in a 24-month period of time, had three of their elders die. Two of them were, were ruling elders, you know, elected by the congregation. These were... Relatively young men, under the age of 40, yes, that's young now <clears throat> to me. Young wife, both in both cases, young wives, young children. And then the third person was their youth pastor, under the age of 35. Young wife, young son, collapsed on a basketball court and died. How do you explain stuff like that? At the end of the 8 o'clock service, someone came up to me afterward and said, you know, here at EP, we had a very similar season of life earlier in the life of our church where where within just a couple of years' period of time, there were like three elders of our church that all died. One had a tree fall on them. Others, others were, their lives were taken in, in very unexpected ways. How do you explain stuff like this? We, ha- we haven't even mentioned... The shootings at the offices of the Capitol just a month or so ago. Or crime in our cities. Or the refugee crisis that that exists in many countries around the world. Or just domestic violence. Social injustice. How do you explain uh, broken marriages? 
kids having to deal with parents who no longer live together and now the kids are, 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 are dividing time back and forth. How do you explain that in a meaningful way? Or how about this? How do you explain why some people work really, really hard but they seem to never be able to catch a break. And then there are other people who seem to not work very hard at all, and yet it seems like everything they touch, is turn, they touch turns to gold. You've seen that happen. You've, some of you have experienced that on, on one, one side or the other or maybe both. I don't know how to explain this. And frankly, I don't know anyone who understands it. I, don't, I can't even get up even as a pastor and say, well, let me tell you what that's all about. I, I don't understand it. But I do know this, very often, because we have this incredible desire to understand, very often what we do is we take these very complicated issues, a very complicated life, and we try to paste over it way too simple explanations. Too simplistic. Let me give you an example. Um, we have this belief in our in our culture, many of us do, that people tend to get what they deserve. That's just kind of an idea that, that many people in our society have believed for a long, long period of time. It's almost like the American way, you know, the way that we think. You, you get what you deserve. Well, guess what? That's not true. There are plenty of times when people get good things that they don't deserve. And there are also times, I think, when, when, when bad things happen to people and they don't deserve it. The disciples tried this with Jesus. They, Jesus comes to this man, maybe you're familiar with this story, where Jesus comes to this man who was blind. He had been blind from birth. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus goes on and heals that man's blindness. But the disciples come to Jesus and they say, with, with their simplistic way of explaining things, they say, so, Lord, who sinned, the parents or the child, that this guy was born blind? Because they believed, simplistically, you get what you deserve. And so we look at, we look at things like this. We say, well, as, as difficult as these things are, as painful as all these things are, Apparently somebody did something wrong. That's terrible. Jesus said that's not the right answer. In fact, in his case, he said, these things have happened so that the power of God might be displayed in this man's life. And I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm cynic. I'm a cynical. I'm a little cynical. And if I had been a disciple of Jesus, I probably would have responded to that by saying, oh, oh, now I understand. No, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's not true, that these things happen so that the power of God may be demonstrated in his life, but I don't know what that really means. I mean, I, I might understand it in here. It's like, okay, well, this guy was born blind so that on his 34th birthday, the Messiah might come along and heal him, and that's great for him. But what about all the other people that are born blind, that didn't meet Jesus in his earthly ministry or never met someone to heal them? I don't... I'm just saying to you, I don't understand what that would mean. Another example, perhaps you're, 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 you, you know some doctrine and you're familiar with, with this doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is one God and He exists, He has existed eternally 
in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's pretty simple, right? That's easy to understand. No, it's not. That's a hard doctrine to understand. In fact, I would suggest to you that more heresies have come into the church around that doctrine because people try to take something that's very complex, very difficult to understand. They say, oh, no, no, let's make it easy. We'll just say this. Well, no, that's, that doesn't get at it. Or there's another doctrine that also, the, the deity of Christ. The idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You take those two doctrines, the doctrine of the deity of, of Jesus and the doctrine of the Trinity, you put those together, more heresies have come into the, doctor, into, the, into the church through those two doctrines than anything that I'm aware of. Because in our desire to understand, we give way too simple explanations of things that are complicated and hard to understand, and therefore we say dumb things. Oh, well, your family's going through this because obviously somebody messed up. No. Life is complicated, and it's hard to understand. But there is some encouragement, and that is there is someone who understands it. And that's God. In fact, he's the only one. God alone understands it. Verses 23 through 27, I'm going to, I'm going to read these to you. I know, I know Doc McLean read them earlier, but I want to read it again just so that you can hear and, and let, let, this, let this sink in for you. God understands the way to wisdom and understanding. And he knows where they live. He knows their place. For he looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and he declared it and he established it and he searched it out. Do you hear what's being said here? I'm not, I'm not trying to press that this is some type of chronological order, although maybe we could, we could press that, but that's not what I'm trying to say. I just want you to feel the weight of what's being said here. He's saying this life, this world, everything that we know, everything that, that we find so complicating, God has given it. God has apportioned it. God has decreed it. God has seen it. God has declared it. He has established it, and he has searched it. God understands it. He's God. Now, before we go on to verse to, to, to point number three, I'd, I'd like to take a little bit of liberty to try to share with you some of my theorizing about why I think it is that, that this world and this life is so complex and so hard for us, for us to understand, especially right now. I don't mean right now in the sense of in America or the way things are in our political world or anything like that. What I, what I mean is right now in the context of, of the big scheme of what God is doing in throughout world history. When we, when we, if you've been here at EP for, for some length of time, you may have heard 
us talk about the flow of human history, or actually the flow of world history, in a, in a kind of a four-chapter way of, of understanding it. The first chapter we often refer to as creation. Creation refers to the fact that God created all things, but it's not just that he created all things. He created all things good. In other words, he made everything the way it was supposed to be. That's the first chapter of, of, of our history. The, the second chapter we often refer to as the fall, because in this particular chapter of history, the world that God created to be good, where everything worked the way it was supposed to work, sin then came into the picture, and sin affected everything. I'm not saying that sin made everything as bad as it possibly could be, but sin has affected everything. Everything's been contaminated with sin. And so that's why things like war and crime and pollution and sickness and death and everything else that's bad. It's why divorce and, and all, all that, all of it. Everything that, that we look at in the world and say, that's not what it was made, made to be, has come from the fall. So you have creation, then you have the fall, and then the third chapter is something we, we often refer to in terms of redemption. We know that, that for God so loved the world that he looked at the world that he had made good, we saw, he saw it in its fallen, broken state, and he so loved us that he sent his son into the world. And so Jesus came and perfectly satisfied the requirements. In other words, he lived the way that life was made to be lived. And then he died on the cross to redeem the broken world out of that brokenness. And then God raised him from the dead, demonstrating de- victory over sin and death. And so where you have, you have creation being a picture of what it, what it was supposed to be, then you have the fall, which is the way it is, which is broken, and then you have redemption, which starts to, to give us a sense of what it can be. We're new creatures, the scriptures say, in Christ. It's what it can be. And then, and then the fourth chapter is the chapter that hasn't been written yet, and that's we believe that Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, all things will be made new. He will bring about the renewal of all things, new heavens, new earth, and there will be a restoration of all that God has made, including people. And so we, we look at it this way. We see it up on, as it's up on the screen, where you see the, the progressive flow from creation to fall to redemption. And I think, I think this is the way we think of it. We, we, we think of it this way. It's helpful for us. If we break it into pieces and we can look at it all and we see how they're separate, we see how they, they flow in chronological order. And if I, and if I ask you on this, this line here, I could say, so, where are you on the line? And you can probably find yourself there. You can probably say, oh, I think I'm here. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, then you could say, well, I'm, I'm in that redemption chapter, right? I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm, the scriptures tell me that, that I'm redeemed. And so that's where I am. If somebody hasn't put their faith in Jesus Christ, then we would probably say, well, they're, they're kind of in the fall chapter still because they were created in the image of God and they were, and everything was good. But then sin has come into the world. And so they, along like all the rest of us, have experienced the fall. So they might look at themselves there. Here's the problem though. I don't think this is how we experience the, the different chapters of, of our history. 
we may understand it this way, but but we don't experience this way. You wonder how we ex- we experience it? We experience it like this. Let's go to the next slide. Go ahead and hit the first one. So we have creation, right? Raise your hand if you're created in the image of God. That You should all raise your hand, okay? We're all created in the image of God. And so there are parts of, of who we are that are the way that God meant us to be. But then how do we experience the fall? Here's how we experience the fall. If you're not colorblind, you can see what we're talking about, right? See, our experience of the fall is right on top of our being created in the image of God. We are at the same time created in the image of God, possessing incredibly great qualities and abilities, and yet right on top of it we have this sinful nature where where we're constantly doing things not the way that God intended. And so you got creation and the fall, and then we hear the gospel... And we put our faith in Jesus, and so we're redeemed. Here's how we experience redemption. It's right on top. Do you see that this is true in your life? When, when you put your faith in Christ, how many of you stopped sinning? Don't put your hand up. None of us did. So we've got this thing going on where, where we are still sinning, We're still living in the brokenness of this world. We're still contributing to the brokenness of this world because of our own sin and our sinful nature. And yet God comes along and says, guess what? In Christ, you're a new creature. You've got a new nature. The Holy Spirit now lives in you and you are a new creation. And we say, yes, but we've still got this incredible muscle memory for sin, don't we? We do it easily. It's like we never forgot. So, so this is how it works. We've, we're we're creating the image of God. There's all these wonderful things going on. And then the fall comes. And then our redemption comes. But our experience of it looks like chaos. We don't know how to make sense of it. Why is it that I'm trusting in Jesus, but I, I can still get cancer? Why is it that I'm trusting in Jesus, but my marriage can still be horrible? Why is it that I'm trusting in Jesus, and yet my kids don't obey me? And, and the list could go on and on. And so we look at life. And from our vantage point, we say, this makes no sense. But God looks at the same thing. And he sees with a different perspective. See, God's able to take that pile of chaos that's a mess, and he's able to then turn it sideways and look at it and see spaces in between it and things that are going on. And get this, God works in that things that are good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you realize that that's what Romans 8:28 is really saying? It's not saying, "Hey, life's complicated, you know, but don't worry, it all comes out in the wash. God's going to make it okay in the end. It's going to have a happy ending." That's not what Paul is saying in Romans 8. What he's saying is, "Look at that. Look at your life that feels like that. In the midst of that, God is working." And what he is doing in that is good 
all things together for good according to His purpose. Well, how do we live effectively? And how do we live with perspective? Well, the answer is that our hope is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Now, I realize that when when we hear that phrase, we, we think, okay, so our hope is to be afraid of God, to be scared of God, because to us, fear and being afraid are almost synonymous. But I don't think that that's what it means, at least not here, not in in context of, of fearing the Lord. In Psalm 130, David says, If you, O Lord, should, should count our sins, if you would mark our transgressions, no one could stand. Now, in that situation, we might say fearing the Lord might mean being afraid, because if God treats us the way our sins deserve then yes, we should be afraid. But he goes on and he says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you, God, there is forgiveness in order that you may be feared. The more you forgive me, the more I fear you. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what I think it means. I'll try to illustrate it for you. A couple of weeks ago, there was, there was an article in the Capitol, our, our local paper, that announced that on July 3rd, the Stanley Cup would be in down, at downtown Annapolis, at City Dock. And, and so, hundreds of people, I'm not, I'm not gonna overblow it, it wasn't in mass hysteria or anything, but there were hundreds of people down at City Dock on July 3rd to see the Stanley Cup. It came up into the into the, the inner you know into City Dock area in a boat. It was on the bow of the boat, and everybody had lined all the way around City Dock to, to see it. And it was it was it was fun. I mean, there were hundreds of people dressed up in their red Capitals gear. They were cheering. They were applauding. It was it was it was really a, a really neat afternoon. What were they there for? Why were they there? Well, they were there because most of those people had been rooting for the Capitals for years and years and years without a championship, right? And so finally, for the, in the, for the first time in, in franchise history, the Washington Capitals won the, the National Hockey League championship. And, and the trophy is the Stanley Cup. By the way, does anyone not know what I'm talking about here? There's this thing called hockey. Okay, I think, I think you probably have it. But, but they're there because they've been rooting for this team, and for the first time ever, they finally win. And so, so they're happy. They're happy for the Capitals. They're happy for D.C. They're happy for all the Capitals fans. They're honoring the accomplishment of this team. Now, I gotta tell you, not everyone who was there at City Dock that day were Capitals fans. Not everyone was there because they, they were rooting for the Capitals. Now, I think they were happy to be there. I think they were, they were happy to be 
to, to be able to see the Stanley Cup. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, somewhat rare opportunity to be able to see the Stanley Cup. Um, I think they enjoyed being a part of the crowd. They even intellectually acknowledged that the Capitals won the championship. But they weren't there for the love of the Capitals. They weren't there to honor and to celebrate and to applaud the accomplishment of this team. Fearing God is not just intellectually acknowledging that he is God. Satan does that. Neither is fearing God in in the way we're talking about it here obeying God because you're afraid of what might happen to you if you don't. That's not, that's not the fear of the Lord that we're talking about. What we're talking about is being in awe of God, being filled with wonder at who God is and all that he has done, particularly in response to his grace and his goodness. That's what David was saying. David was saying, with you, God, there is forgiveness. And in response to your forgiveness, I fear you. I'm not afraid of you. I honor you. I cherish you. I'll follow you anywhere. That's the fear of the Lord. There's another aspect here, too, that, that I haven't really drawn any attention to, and, um, but it's, I think it's very important, and, and it comes from the context here. You know, we're, this passage that we've read is, is from the book of Job. I mean, other than when Doc came up here and he said our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Job, we haven't even talked about the book of Job. This is the book of Job. Do you know what the book of Job is? Do you know who Job is? Even if you've never read the Bible, there's a very good chance that you've heard of Job. Because Job has become synonymous with what? Suffering and pain and agony. Job's life is miserable. He has lost his wife. He has lost his children. He has lost his wealth. He's even lost his health. At one point... He is covered in boils, among other things. So, so for Job, Job's life as he has known it is over. I think what this means, the fact that this passage is, is written in the book of Job, in the context of Job's suffering, it means that that it's not, we're not just simply saying that life is complicated, so fear God, and it'll all be okay. I think what's really saying is the fear of God is our only hope, especially in suffering, especially when life is hard. When our, our kids were young, we, we did what, what we thought all responsible parents do. We took them to the pediatrician. I'm not looking for a medal for that. I think it's normal. You know, everybody does that. You take your kids to the pediatrician. Well, at the particular doctor's office where, where we took our kids, there was a woman who worked there, and her name was Jean. We had a name for Jean. We called her Mean Jean. 
for short. That was the short version. The far, Gene's full name in our family was Mean Gene the Shot Machine. Our kids did not like Gene. Gene made our kids cry. Our kids were afraid of Gene. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be near Gene. They didn't want to be in the same building with Gene. Sometimes they would even, they would even get angry. As they got a little older, they would, they went from being afraid to being angry with us because we took them to see Gene. So what we would do is we, we would say, you know, we, this is for your good. You know, you just have to, you have to, you have to believe that, that this is important. We need these injections. We need these vaccinations. We need these shots because, you know, there's these bugs, these germs, you know, and, 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 and if we don't kill the germs and we don't help your body fight these germs, you know, and our kids are probably thinking, just spray me with raid. Anything would be better than, than the, getting these shots. But we would try to explain to them why they needed these shots and why it was for their, for their own good. And then they would, you know, they would do as you imagine what they do. They would say, yeah, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. I just don't want it. And so we would get to a place where we would just have to say, you know, I know, I know you don't understand. I know this is very difficult for you to, to, to grasp and to, to believe in. But we love you. You need to trust us. And just try to be still. Just do it. Just, just endure it. Just weather it. Trust us and be still. You know, the gap between our understanding and our, and our kids' understanding, that gap is minuscule compared to the gap that exists between our understanding and God's understanding. There are so many times when we look at our life, we look at the mess, you know, of seeing, you know, who we are and this world and this life all piled on and it's chaotic and it's painful. We look at it and we say, I do not understand this. It makes no sense to me. And God says, I know you don't understand. But I'm asking you to trust me. Because I'm doing something here that you can't grasp. But I'm asking you to be still. Be still and know that I am God. When, when, we, when we see all this happening around us, it is very tempting for us to say one of two things. We, we, we will either say, you know, this, this pain, this suffering, this chaos, this mess is just proof positive that God doesn't care or that God is incompetent. He's just not around. He is asleep at the wheel. He's, he's just not doing his job. Therefore, I don't, I don't need him. I'm just going to do it my way. Or it's tempting to, to kind of go the other, the other extreme, which is to say, hey, God, I'm praying. I'm reading, I'm obeying, I'm serving, I'm churching. You better do this for me. You owe this to me. I have been faithful. I have done all the right things. You need to deliver this out of my circumstance. 
neither of those are the fear of the Lord the way that we're talking about it here. They're both really attempts at control. One is to say, God's asleep, God doesn't care, God's incompetent, so I'm going to take it myself. Or it's saying, God, you have to. I deserve this. I've earned this. You owe it. Both of those are are power grabs. Neither of them are the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding, the fear of the Lord says, Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. What's happening here, I don't understand. But you're God, and I'm not. And so rather than getting angry with you or demanding my rights before you, your will be done, not mine. I will trust you. You know that as as Jesus hung on the cross, there were there were people at the foot of the cross who were mocking him. There were probably a number of things they were saying, but one of the things that the mockers at the foot of the cross said to Jesus was they said, "If you're the king of the Jews, if you're if you really are who you say you are, then come down off that cross and show your power and your authority. Prove that you are who you are by coming down off that cross." But he didn't. He was still. Do you know why he didn't come down? The reason that Jesus was still and did not come down was because the night before he was crucified, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. This isn't what I want, but you're the Father, I'm the Son, your will, not mine. Jesus hung on the cross, stayed on the cross, instead of escaping his own suffering because he loved us, because he valued us, because he chose us over relief from his own pain. I believe that you and I will have a very, very difficult time, if not impossible time, fearing the Lord the way that we're talking about here until we see God in Christ Jesus remaining still in the face of suffering for us. We will have a difficult time remaining still in the face of our suffering until we see that God remains still in Jesus in the face of his suffering. But if we can if we can see that and understand that more deeply then we can recognize that what held Jesus on the cross, because he very easily could have said, yeah, I'll prove to you who I am, and I'll come down, and then I'm going to you know, call down lightning you know, and, and, take, and torch all of you. He could have. But he stayed on the cross because he chose us over relief. He loved us that much. My prayer for myself and, and for all of us is that, that we would be able to deal with the complexity of this life, not by being simplistic and coming up with silly explanations that really don't, don't go deep enough 
but instead we would fear the Lord, that we would honor the Lord because of who he is and what he has done for us and how he's loved us. Let me pray and ask God to help us do that. Father, you are the Lord, and you are the one who understands. Life is complicated, and it's very hard for us to understand. We don't understand so much of this world and this life. But you do. And you've told us that fearing you, having an awe for you, a reverence for who you are, and a trust in you is, is the hope. It's our hope for navigating this life and its complexity. We thank you that we have something that Job did not have. And that is the perspective of knowing that you were still in the face of suffering when you atoned for our sin. May that be something that would strengthen us as you call us to be still in the face of our own suffering, trusting that in the midst of the mess and the chaos, you are working all things together for good according to your good purpose. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in this truth, in this reality. Help us to see things the way you see them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.